Last Shabbat, we were discussing blood covenant relationships. We looked at the covenant that God made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, which was a blood covenant. We looked at the covenant that Yeshua made with his disciples, which includes you and you and you and me, which is also a blood covenant. And we discussed some practical ramifications on relationships like marriage, which is also a blood covenant. And uh, you guys really loved me because I decided not to cram that whole thing into one talk, and I split it up into two. So this is, this is part two, along those lines. Um, last week we talked about a, a saying that is very popular today. It's not about religion, it's about a relationship with God. And we said, yes, there is some truth to that, but it presupposes that you know what a relationship is. What is a relationship? We have Western concepts of relationship. Does that mean casual dating? Does that mean going out for coffee with somebody? Uh, does that mean you, uh, let's say, go and watch the game with your buddies? What is, what is a relationship? And uh, the main point that we made last week is, it, from God's perspective, it is about a relationship with Him, but it's not about a casual dating relationship. It's not like you just kind of go out for coffee with Jesus every now and then in a non-committal way. It's a very serious relationship that is called a covenant relationship. God doesn't do casual dating relationships like we do in the West. He does very committed blood covenant relationships. So we're going to be continuing that theme today. Uh, last week, we talked about there are several, you could see they're like strands in the cord of a covenant relationship. And I, 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 I would count about seven strands. And, and if you've ever tried to pull apart a strand, they're, pretty, um, they're often pretty bustable. You can, you can break a strand. But if you take all those strands and you wind them together, my poor little girl. If you take all those strands and you wind them together, you get a rope that is very hard to break. And so it's, the, it's very much like that in a covenant relationship. If you just have one of these strands in a covenant relationship, it, it's possible that you can snap the thing. Like Samson snapped those, um, those ropes that were on him. However, if you have multiple strands all wound together, you get something that has a very high degree of tensile strength. So last week we talked about when God brought his people Israel into a covenant, it began with a proposal. So I'm going to draw a little picture to symbolize each of these seven strands, just so we can help picture it. How would you, how would you picture a proposal? Probably um, a guy kneeling in front of a girl, hey? Um, I'm, I'm sure for several of us that's how we proposed in the, the classic posture. So we'll draw the girl. Um, oh, okay, we have just enough room for a head here, good. There, there's the girl and there's the guy. Oh, he's kind of tiny, but it's all your perspective. Yeah, and there's the ring, all right? So proposal, that's the first thing. And uh, we didn't just look at how God proposed to Israel at Mount Sinai when he said, if you listen to my voice and if you guard my covenant, then you will be my special people. We also talked about what was the moment when Yeshua proposed to his disciples. We thought probably it was when he offered them the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant. However, there could be other instances where maybe you could look at it like a proposal. Secondly, in a covenant relationship, there are words exchanged. We talked about how there are promises made. We call them the marriage vows. Um, how would we picture promises made? Uh, what's a good picture for that? The Bible? Hey, that's a good one. Okay. We'll draw, try, dry. You know what? Let's, I'll draw a scroll. They're easier to draw. Okay, so we'll draw a scroll here to symbolize the promises that he has made. Great. Okay. So there's, a, there's something for promises made. Now, there were also, in addition to the promises that were made, they were written down. Right? There's the proposal, there are the promises made, and then that is put into writing. Does anyone remember what that's called in Hebrew? 
The ketubah, that's correct. And yes, Charlotte, brit is the Hebrew word for covenant. So the ketubah is taking the brit, the words that were exchanged with witnesses, and writing them down. So what are we gonna, what are we gonna draw for the ketubah? How about this? Um, Genevieve and I have a ketubah. It's, it's, it was our marriage vows that we made at our betrothal and then at our wedding. It was signed with witnesses and it's kind of a beautiful artistic thing. So I'll try and just draw kind of a nice framed uh, ketubah. That's what I'll do. And I'll draw, how about a big heart and then some, there you go, how's that? Okay. So that's, um, that's putting it into writing. And that brings us to today's talk. We are going to be looking at the next four strands. Um, maybe you noticed most of these are like primarily verbal, right? Words exchanged and then put into writing. Today we are going to be looking at the shedding of blood, which is what makes a blood covenant, the giving of a sign, a physical token of that covenant, the feast, which is my favorite part of any event, and then the revelation of two people. That's what we're going to be looking at today. So, in Hebrew, if you want to talk about making a covenant with someone, you literally say you're cutting a covenant with that person. So if you're going to enter into a covenant relationship, and uh, that could be like a contractual business relationship, it could be an international peace treaty, it could be a marriage covenant between two people. In all those instances, you would say in Hebrew that you cut the covenant. Why is it called that? Because in the ancient Middle East, if a covenant of that kind was made, it had to be made with blood. And it's not actually explicitly stated why it had to be made with blood, but that's the way it was done. I assume that if there is bloodshed, whether it be the blood of an animal or a human, it adds a great degree of seriousness to the event. Something or somebody had to die to found that covenant. That's not something that's taken lightly. Therefore, it's called cutting the covenant because somebody got cut, whether it be a, a person or an animal. Um, in the Bible, people weren't cut for covenants. It was animals that were often chopped up. And then, for instance, they would chop a couple animals in two pieces and the people would walk between the two pieces of the animal. Um, I, have a couple, I have a couple theories about why there was blood involved. Maybe it was just to make it a, a very serious event. Um, something we do know from the Torah is God says that the life of a person is in their blood. So when, you, when someone's blood is shed, that is their life exiting their body. How could that help us understand the making of a covenant? Um, maybe simply, when, when blood is shed or poured out, it symbolizes entering into the covenant with your whole life and dying to everything outside of the covenant. Um, I think maybe a good way of understanding that is in our traditional English wedding vows, we say what? Forsaking all others. Yeah. That's the idea. When there's bloodshed in a covenant, it's saying, this symbolizes me entering with my whole life, with my very life, into this covenant. And I'm forsaking all others. Everything and everyone outside of this covenant, I am now dead to. Maybe that could be the, uh, the idea behind the blood covenant. And we definitely see this in the covenant between God and Israel. If you want to look at the book of Exodus, or Shemot with me, chapter 24, verses 5 and 8, this is what we read. Exodus 24, verse 5. Moses sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to Yahweh. Moses took half of the blood, notice the blood, and put it in basins. And the other half of the blood, he what? Sprinkled it on the altar. Then it says, he read the words of the covenant from the ketubah, as it were. And then in verse 8, it says, So Moshe took the blood and sprinkled it or spattered it on the people and said, Look, the blood of the covenant, which Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. So did you see that? There was an animal killed, there was blood taken, and both of the parties who were entering into the covenant were spattered with the blood. And maybe you would say, wait a minute, God didn't get spattered. What Moses did is he spattered the thing that represented God, his altar. So you can see here that Moses took that blood and he spattered it on the altar, representing the Holy One, and he spattered it on the people um, to represent something. So 
Really, like, I, I, that was probably a nightmare for most of the moms there. I mean, think about it. They're going home that day, and, and she's like, oh, oh, my kids have blood in their hair, blood spattered on their faces, blood on their new white-collared shirt. This is going to be a nightmare to get out. I don't know, maybe the moms weren't saying that. But the idea is, like, they went home blood spattered that day. It was a very graphic picture of entering into a covenant. Um... This also works out on a human level. When a man and a woman enter into a marriage relationship where there are virgins, there is some blood there. They enter literally into a blood covenant, the man and the woman. And that, I do not believe, was an accident. That was designed by the creator of the universe. So when two people enter into a marriage covenant, that is a very serious act. It is, in fact, a blood covenant. I think it's really sad today, actually, that people in today's culture are, are, are so eager to get rid of their virginity. They just want to lose the thing. They look at it as something to be ashamed of, which is really sad. That's like having a check for a couple million dollars, like something so valuable, and just wanting to give it away to the first person you can. I've got this check for a couple, hundred, couple million dollars. Could I give it to you? I just want to get rid of the thing. That's the idea. It's, 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 a very, it's a very sad state of affairs because the Creator designed the marriage covenant to be a blood covenant. Um, can you think of an example of this in Yeshua's relationship with His disciples when they entered into a covenant relationship? What did He say when He offered them that cup? What did that cup symbolize on that last night before His passion? He said, this cup is what? The new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many, which is shed for many, for the forgiveness of sins. So you can totally see that just like God entered into a blood covenant with Israel, Yeshua entered into a blood covenant with his disciples. God entered into a blood covenant through his anointed Yeshua with his people. Yes, that's right. There has to be shedding of blood for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, etc. I, I, I believe that this was something that Yeshua's apostles cherished and that they passed on to the early, um, shall we call them Yeshua communities. For instance, one of the guys who were in that inner circle at that Passover Seder on the last night, his name was Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter. He wrote a letter to new communities of disciples out in the diaspora. Uh, specifically, I think a lot of them were in the Galatian region. And this is how it reads. His first letter, chapters, um, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Yeshua the Messiah, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Yeshua the Messiah and be sprinkled with his blood. Did you hear that? that? That's a covenant term. You can only understand what Simon Peter was talking about if you read the Old Testament and understand how God makes a covenant with the people. So he was saying, even though you guys have come into the picture of several decades after Yeshua lifted off planet Earth into the heavens, even though you have never seen him in person, you have been spattered with his blood, just like we were on the day that he was crucified. You have entered into a blood covenant relationship with the Master, just like us. And you are, you are sprinkled with that blood as a picture of that. If you could imagine Yeshua's inner circle on the day that he was crucified. How many of you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ? Okay, it was, it was a bloody, bloody scene. For instance, when Yeshua was flogged, when he was crucified, there was blood everywhere. And I guarantee you that the people standing close by to the master when he was whipped probably literally had his blood spattered on them. So it could very well have been that some of Yeshua's inner circle literally went to bed that night after watching their dear master executed in a horrific fashion. They literally went to, blood, went to bed spattered with his blood. It's such a graphic picture of that covenant that they were brought into through their, their Savior's sufferings, through the, like, the exquisite agony of their dear Master, through His own death by bloodshed. And you just don't walk away from something like that. It is seared forever in your heart. It's like, at that point, there is, there is no turning back because you have entered into a blood covenant, because someone has given their life for you. 
And that is, the, that is the covenant that we have. Simon Peter says, that didn't just happen to us, that happened to you. Maybe you can't see it physically, but you have literally been spattered with the blood of the Master. You have entered into that relationship with Him, and there's no turning back. Um, that's, the, that's the first thing that we'll look at today, which is the fourth element of covenant. Uh, how could we picture that? The shedding of blood. Maybe, you know what, I'll draw a person and I'll just draw a, a blood-spattered person. That's what we'll do. So let's just say you have a, a person here. Okay, we'll draw that too. Um, and uh, you can just, okay, okay, so we'll just literally, if you can imagine someone literally spattered with blood, that's the idea. And um, yeah, we'll draw a basin with hyssop. That's a good idea too. Okay, I, I don't know exactly what hyssop looks like. I hope that's some good-looking hyssop to you guys, right? So, the, um, that was the fourth thing that we see with a covenant relationship. The fifth thing that we see in a covenant relationship is the giving of a sign. Now, a sign in Hebrew is called an oat. Everybody say oat. In Hebrew, it's spelled aleph, vav, tav which is interesting because Aleph and Tav, the first and last letters in that little Hebrew word, in the Greek equivalent would be Alpha and Omega. Alpha and Omega are the first and last words in the Greek alphabet. Aleph and Tav are the first and last letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So it's kind of interesting. When Yeshua says he's the Alpha and the Omega, in Hebrew he's saying he's the Aleph Vav Tav. He is the sign. That is how sign is spelled. Yeshua is the sign. So the sign, in a, when a sign is given in a covenant relationship, it is like a physical token of that relatively abstract agreement. I guess it's put into writing, so you have that. It's like a visible sign of the covenant relationship. When God may, makes a covenant with people, he, from what I've observed, invariably gives a sign. Can you give me some examples? What are some signs that God gave in the context of a covenant? Yes, the rainbow was the sign of the covenant he made in Noah's generation with all of humanity. Um, Shabbat was given as a sign that he is setting us apart. Yep, that's right. Shabbat is a sign that he is setting us apart. Circumcision was the sign that God gave when he brought Abraham into a covenant with himself. Did you notice that? With Abraham and, and Yahweh, there was literally the cutting of a covenant. Abraham got cut and there was blood. That was a physical sign that Abraham never walked away from. Um, I'll list another couple for you. In the Exodus story, God says, and this shall be for you a sign on your hand and a reminder totifot between your eyes. What did he say it would be? He said, the Passover meal on the 14th day of the first month and taking the unleavened bread of your house and eating leaven, uh, sorry, taking the, un taking the leavened bread out of your house and eating only unleavened bread. He said, this will be a sign between you and me. A sign on your hand, or shall we say a mark on your hand and on your forehead. Kind of reminds you of the book of Revelation, doesn't you? Where there's another mark that's taken on the hand and on the forehead. God was the one who first came up with the concept of a sign on the hand and on the forehead, saying, of a way of saying, I belong to the God of Israel. There, there, uh, there are a couple others too. If you've ever seen phylacteries like tefillin, uh, black, little black leather boxes with passages from the Torah that observant Jewish males literally uh, they'll tie one on the arm and put one on the forehead. I do that. I have a set of those. Um, that was something that was done in Yeshua's time. And there's pretty strong evidence that Yeshua himself um, wore those at least on occasion. Anyway, all of these things are, um, are signs of covenant moments between the creator of the universe and specific people. Uh, Mike, you had mentioned how Shabbat is a sign. Let's look at that passage. Exodus chapter 31, verses 13 to 18. This is the sign that Yahweh gave in the context of making this covenant with Israel. Exodus chapter 31, verses 13 to 18. He says this. This is what it says. Um, As for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying... You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign 
between me and you throughout your generations. So did he say temporarily for a specific dispensation until I get tired of you stubborn stiff-necked people and I just decide to walk away from you? Or did he say this is a sign throughout your generations? Yeah, throughout your generations. Okay, let's keep reading. That you may know what? That I am Yahweh who sets you apart, who sanctifies you. Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a temporary covenant until this dispensation is over. No! What he said there is, as a covenant forever, a breed olam. This is the Bible we're looking at here, right? I, I, I personally, I just want to read the Bible, and I want to believe every verse in the Bible. So if I see a verse where God says, my Sabbath is a sign between me and my people throughout their generations. My Sabbath is a sign between me and my people as a covenant forever, a breed olam. I kind of, my ears kind of perk up to that. I say, wait a minute. This, this is what the word says, yes, and it's a memorial of creation. That's right, it was instituted not actually in the Mosaic era, but at the very beginning of creation. I actually I like to ask people, who is the first Sabbatarian in history? Who is the per first person to observe Shabbat? And the answer is God. He was at it before anybody else, and that's why we do it, because we imitate him. So anyway, he goes on to say in verse 17, it's a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever, forever. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. So, it's very important when reading the Bible that we let the revelation in the Bible build on itself. Because the scriptures never contradict each other. So if God says something here, and then one of Yeshua's apostles come later and says something that could be interpreted in one of a couple ways, and one of those ways could be an interpretation that the Sabbath doesn't matter, matter anymore, God doesn't care, it's done away with, it's for a past dispensation, we have to stop and we have to say, okay, either the Bible's wrong or my interpretation of it is wrong. So there are some passages in Paul's letters where some people would say, they would misinterpret that to say, well, Paul is saying that this is done away with, that God doesn't care about stuff like that anymore. But um, as we can see from this passage, such is not the case. So anyway, what we see here is when God made a covenant between himself and Israel, he gave the Shabbat as a sign, which is really neat, actually, because most signs are like, um, they're physical tokens. It's like something in space. But Shabbat is really neat because it's universal. It doesn't exist in the dimension of space. It exists in the dimension of time. So no matter where you are, on or off the planet, it's still there. You can't actually get away for it. It comes around every week, whether you're ready or not. Maybe some of you have experienced that, you know, Friday evening, the sun's almost setting, and you're scrambling to finish your work and your house cleaning or whatever, because this thing don't stop for anybody. So that's the, uh, that's, that's, um, a sign there. Okay, here's a big question now. When it comes to our relationship with Yeshua and with God through him, what is the sign of that covenant in Yeshua's blood, the new covenant? What's the covenant? What's the covenant? The Holy Spirit within us. Yeah, okay, the Holy Spirit within us. I don't know if there's one answer actually. But um, that's, that's neat, yeah. Here, here are a couple ones that I thought of also. Um, in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, the master says this. He says, Mark chapter 16, verse 15, to go into all the world, proclaim the good news to all creatures, he who has believed and has been what? baptized or immersed shall be saved but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned I believe, that, I, I believe that that is one of the signs of our new covenant relationship through Yeshua's blood that choice to be immersed in water as a public testimony and a statement of our allegiance to our new master so, so well, that's a big question, and we can get into that later. But Paul also says in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 
2, verses 11 11 and 12, that just like there was the covenant through Abraham with circumcision as the sign of it, we have experienced that equivalent in our hearts in the new covenant through baptism. So you can draw this connection from Colossians chapter 2, that just like circumcision was the sign of the covenant through Abraham, um, immersion in water, baptism, is a sign of the covenant through Yeshua's shed blood. Um, Reading on a little bit more in Mark, it has a couple of other signs listed too. So you can't say there's one sign, in my opinion. He goes on to say, these signs, and now you're understanding, right? When he talks about signs, he's talking about tokens of a covenant relationship. He's talking about something visible that you can see that says, I'm in a covenant relationship with this person. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. So there will be authority to kick evil spirits out of situations and out of people. They will speak with new languages. So the ability to supernaturally speak with a new language, whether it be a language that uh, is globally spoken by some people group on planet Earth or whether it be a prayer language, that is a sign of our covenant relationship. Uh, They will pick up serpents. That's a pretty cool one. It's like having power over lethal animals. I... uh, I don't know, maybe we should all walk around with vipers and rattlesnakes around our neck, kind of like just to say we're in a covenant relationship or something. Hey? No. But it's interesting that that is one of the signs given of the new covenant. Like, there's a certain degree of authority that we have over the creation. There, there are certain times when you will be immune to what would otherwise be lethal injury. Uh, what would be an example? In the Acts of the Apostles. Do you remember they had a big shipwreck? Paul was there with a bunch of prisoners. It was raining and they were all shivering and freezing cold and they were all running around gathering wood. And I thought it was really cool that Paul wasn't sitting there having a theological conversation while everybody else was working so they could survive. He was out there gathering a big bundle of sticks, working hard, and he brought his bundle of sticks and he was going to throw it on the fire and there was a viper in there and it came out and attached itself to his hand. And all the, all the locals started watching him because they're like, man, that, that guy must be one bad dude. Like, even though he survived the shipwreck, the gods are not going to let him get away with it. He's going to die. And uh, they watched him and watched him and watched him and he just didn't die. And then they thought he was a god. It's kind of funny. But anyway, that's an example of that sign. There was a, that was a literal sign that Yeshua's emissary Paul was in a covenant relationship with Yeshua. They couldn't see Yeshua, but they could sure see that this guy didn't keel over dead. Very cool. Um, He goes on to say, And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. You cannot apply this verse to soft drinks, or turpentine, or engine oil, or anything else that may be harmful to your health. It just doesn't work that way, right? Uh, We don't go around drinking stuff that we shouldn't drink, because Yeshua said, If I drink any deadly poison, it's not going to hurt me. That would be testing him. However, if someone made an assassination attempt on you by slipping something in your drink that would be lethal, Yeshua says, as a a sign of my covenant with you, I'm going to keep you alive. I'm going to supernaturally preserve you. You are going to survive what would otherwise be lethal assassination attempts. So that's just kind of something to put in your tool belt. You have some supernatural powers at your disposal as Yeshua dictates them. There will be times when maybe you would be killed in some incident. There are times when someone may try to assassinate you. And Yeshua says it's not going to happen. And that's a sign of my covenant relationship with you. And people do give their heads a good shake and take note of that. Now, how about the marriage covenant? What is the classic sign of, let's say, a man or a woman to say, I'm in a marriage relationship? That's right, a ring. (laughs) So can you see the parallel here? We totally understand this concept of a sign in our culture too. We totally have it. Um, What does it mean that you wear a wedding ring? What does it say? It says, I have a very significant other. I'm taken and I'm not available. I am in a covenant relationship with somebody. That is essentially what it says to the world without you having to even say anything. It's very, uh, very convenient. we, uh, we, we, have a, we, have, we have some dear friends, and uh, this person is like really intelligent, this person has like a wonderful, wonderful heart, and this person is so sincere in um, their like, desire to 
follow God and his word. And this person did a study of wedding rings and the origin of wedding rings, right? And basically came to the conclusions that wedding rings have pagan origins and they come from Greco-Roman idolatrous customs or something and that maybe believers shouldn't wear wedding rings. So anyway, this person emailed this study to Genevieve and... Um, and she read this study, and we were going for our wa a walk, and she was like, you know, I read this, and what do you think of it? And I was like, you know, regardless of where this custom came from, if you don't wear a wedding ring, guys are going to think you're available, and they're going to hit on you. And then I will have to hit them. And I don't want guys to hit on you, and I don't want to have to hit guys, because I like guys. They're my friends. So... Just wear the wedding ring, was, was the conclusion that we came to. And that would, be, that would be an example, right? In our culture, if you don't wear a wedding ring and you're in a, in a marriage relationship, you're stupid. And you're saying some things that you don't want to say. Um, sometimes guys will like go to the bar with some buddies, married guys, and they'll take their wedding ring off. Have you ever seen that? Makes me so mad. Because guys like that, oh, it just it says so much stuff. For a guy to take off his wedding ring intentionally in certain situations is saying he has no commitment to his covenant partner. It says that he has no concept of steadfast love. It says that he's unstable. He doesn't have a clue who he is. He's shifty. He's spineless. And he's a little boy who just lives for his own gratification. It says a lot of stuff. So it really, it really bothers me. And I mean, you know, generally guys who do that are unbelievers. And maybe, maybe you shouldn't expect guys like that to... Uh, to have any concept of covenant relationship because the covenant relationship between a husband and wife is a picture of the covenant relationship that we have with God through Yeshua's shed blood. So it makes sense. If you don't understand a covenant relationship with the Creator, you probably won't understand a marriage covenant relationship. I think we could probably conclude that. So all that to say, when I go out with guys, I keep my wedding ring on and I'm proud of it. And the waitresses don't flirt with me and I'm glad about that. And Yeshua, I mean, and Genevieve wears a wedding, wedding ring, and guys don't hit on her. And you know, it just works. It really works. Here's the cool thing, though. Just like my wedding ring says a lot, and it kind of communicates something in our culture, the signs that God has given his people say the same thing. So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, when the people of Israel circumcised their sons, when we, Yeshua's people, celebrate the seventh day of the week is Shabbat, and we don't work, uh, we make every effort not to buy and sell on that day or to make other people work, let's say at restaurants or whatever, when we do what we can, when we eat the Passover meal, when we clean the leaven out of our houses and we eat unleavened bread for that week, when we are immersed in water, when we become believers to say, I am in union with Yeshua and I am choosing to be allegiant to him when we lay our hands on the sick and we see them healed, um, when we cast out demons, when we survive assassination attempts, all of these things are signs that God gave in his word. When we do these things, what we're saying to the world is, I'm taken. My heart belongs to someone already. I am in a covenant relationship with somebody. And maybe you can't see him in the room, but he's there. That's what you're saying. So it's, it's, it's something to be cherished. Every sign that God gives his people is definitely something to be cherished and to be guarded closely. How could we, uh, how could we picture that concept of a sign in the covenant relationship? How about just a wedding ring? Would that be cool? Yeah, okay, we'll draw a wedding ring. Um, Okay, let's try and draw a hand here. Thumb, finger, 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 finger. Wedding ring. There we are. I better draw. There. Fingers on the other side too. So that's the idea. Great. <laughs> yeah, bond servants had a ring in their ears. That's right. That was what that was what I told myself when I when I pierced my ears and I. I actually pierced my nipple in my teens, too. Um, I was like, yeah, I'll have a ring right over my heart to say that I'm a bond servant and my heart is given to him. Anyway, I'm not sure. I think that might have been taking some stuff out of context, but that's a funny little story from my, my skater years when I had a mohawk and I had a lot of piercings and things like that. Um, thank you for laughing. 
<laughs> yeah, okay, the next, the next um, element in the covenant relationship, this is one of my favorites, the feast. We get to eat. Eating is a wonderful, wonderful expression of a covenant relationship. Uh, we totally see this in this passage, Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. It says, Then Moshe went up with Aharon, Nadav, and Avihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself, yet he didn't stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. So can you hear there's that feast element in this passage? There was a feast. Um, is there also a feast in the new covenant through Yeshua's shed blood? I think there is. I think there most certainly is. Let's look at Revelation chapter 19. And this is the cool thing. This is actually something that hasn't happened yet. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, actually from verse, verse 7, let's say. Revelation 19, 7 says this. Let's rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. There's the wedding gown. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Wow. So there is going to be a feast, and there are going to be guests. And there's going to be a bride, and there's going to be a groom. So for all, all you gals who just love weddings, man, you have yet to have seen the best wedding in history. And you're definitely going to, be want, want to, gonna, you're going to want to be at that one. There's actually, there's a description of this wedding feast in the writings of the prophet Yeshayahu or Isaiah chapter 25. We should read that together too. Isaiah 25. Specifically, verses 6 to 9. This is what it says. Isaiah 25, 6 to 9. Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. He's talking about um, Mount Zion, by the way. That's a geographical area. A banquet of aged wine. Mm. Choice pieces with marrow. That's like uh, steak, just so you know. That's like really, really good steak. And refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the master, Yahweh, will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for Yahweh has spoken. That hasn't happened yet. That is still going to happen. And he, he uses descriptions like fine wine, like fantastic steak, and he says that is going to be a time when he, there's like this, this, this film of death over the peoples of planet Earth, and he's going to pull that off. I just think about the life that is going to come, like bubbling up in the heart of every person. It's fantastic. Um, um, I think most of you here celebrate Shabbat, so you probably know what I'm talking about when I say that on Friday evenings, as the sun is setting and the biblical Sabbath is beginning, uh, we sit down for a nice candlelit dinner. We have braided challah bread usually. We'll have a glass of wine or grape juice. We'll sing the blessings. We have candles lit. And I would suggest to you, this next Friday evening, when you're, when you're having that meal, think to yourself, this is a picture of the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is like a beautiful little foretaste of, what the, of the, the gorgeous banquet that we are going to have with our Master Yeshua upon His return. You can almost look like at every Friday evening like a little rehearsal for that great banquet that's, uh, that's coming in the future. Uh, Yeshua talked about the banquet also. He mentioned some of the guests who will be there. Um, where is that? It's in his conversation with, about the, uh, the centurion who of course was a, uh, was a non-Jew. And uh, what did he... What did he say there? This is what he said. Um, Matthew chapter 8, verse 10. This is what he said about the centurion's faith. Now when Yeshua heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I haven't found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? It's like the patriarchs and the matriarchs of our faith. They're going to be there at that great banquet. 
And uh, there are going to be people coming from every uh, direction of the compass too, every point. Um, do we have a parallel for this in um, how, we do, how we do weddings in our culture? The whole concept of the, the wedding feast. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, the reception. Isn't that cool? Like, even though, even though we are quite far removed as a culture from like how covenants were made in the olden days, let's say in the, in the Middle East, we still actually have some very striking similarities. We have guests that are invited, there's a big banquet, and uh, it's a big celebration. And, uh, and we celebrate that covenant relationship that's beginning. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty neat that we have that. Um, maybe you could even look at it this way. Okay, like, okay, so you have this big banquet, and that is a covenant meal. Um, we also talked about how every Friday evening, when we have that, that candlelit dinner to open the Shabbat, that's like a covenant, let's, let's call it an echo of the great covenant uh, meal. I wonder if just every meal between believers or every meal between spouses could also be looked at as some echo of that covenant. Could it be that eating together is actually like a covenantal act at times? I think so. Um, often in our culture, we find that families don't eat together, that married couples are, it's on the decline that they'll actually just sit down and have some uninterrupted time to just eat together and talk. I think that's one of the advantages of going out on a date. You just get out of the house, you get away from the phone, you turn off your phone hopefully, and you just make some time, right, to have like a meal that maybe is actually kind of covenantal. So, I mean, I've, I've really been getting into this. Like Genevieve and I, 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 I really like to make suppers a time when we connect, when we talk about our day, and we kind of just renew the covenant relationship. You know, so we'll say, well, how was your day? How are you doing? Those kinds of questions. Um, you know, sometimes the conversation doesn't last for the whole meal. So after we've talked our hearts out, then we'll watch a rerun of Little House on the Prairie or Man Tracker. We recently discovered Man Tracker. Oh, I love that show. So sometimes we'll do that too. But we always, we never like watch something first. We always put our relationship first, right? So that'd be an example of how I'm, I've been applying this in my life lately. And then finally, uh, here, let's, let's draw a picture of that. And then we'll look at the last the last element in a, uh, in a covenantal relationship. What shall we draw for the banquet? Big table with lots of food. Okay, good. Um, you want to watch me? Okay, that would be good. So we'll draw a big table here. Well, just careful not to bump my leg, okay? Thank you. Oh, there's the table. Here, we'll draw a couple candles on it to make it really pretty. Candle holder. Candle holder. There we are. That's nice. Um, draw a nice big goblet. Okay, some challah. There's a good idea. Oh man, how do I draw a challah? There we are. How's that? And um, and a big steak. There we are. That's supposed to be a steak. Grapes. Grapes. Okay, yeah, I'll draw grapes on the table too for sure. Oh, nice. Okay. And I'll draw a big happy face. There. <laughs> to symbolize joy and celebration. Okay. And then um, finally, the last, um, the last thing we see in a covenant relationship is the covenant partners reveal themselves to each other. And this is actually an ongoing thing throughout any relationship. Um, for instance, in God's relationship with Israel, he came to Israel when, when she was still in Egypt, and through his mediator Moses, he, he spoke to her. Um, when he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Pharaoh and began delivering a series of blows to the face of Egypt, as it were, Israel was watching. She was seeing something of his strength and of his resolve to rescue her. When he brought Israel out to the wilderness and provided for her, he was revealing himself to Israel. When he spoke audibly from Mount Sinai, he was showing himself to her. When he gave her laws in the several chapters after the ten words were given from Mount Sinai, he was revealing something of himself to her, that he is just, that he cares about the individual, um, different things like that, that he's gracious. Um, and then finally, in this chapter also, we see God literally showing himself visibly to Moses, to um, the, the, who's soon going to be the priests, and to the, uh, the, the leadership of the nation. He, they literally, it says, saw God in um, Exodus chapter 24. 
verse, um, verse 10, it says, They saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphires, clear as the sky itself. Yet he didn't stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw Elohim, God, and they ate and drank. Wow. So you totally see that in, um, in this covenant relationship. And like, if you, if you look at pretty much anybody on the planet with a heart, um, there's something deep in us that wants to know other people, that wants to be known by other people. Uh, I don't think any human being really wants to be all alone and to not be known by anybody else. Um, I think in the hearts of a lot of people is this desire to be known by thousands or millions of people, uh, people who aspire to be like celebrities or pop stars or people who are visible in the media. I wonder if there isn't something deep in people's hearts like that that, that isn't like an expression of a desire just to be known. Um, could it be? You look, at, you look at Adam and Eve, our, our first ancestors, all the way back in the garden um, before the era of clothes. They lived naked. They were biblical nudists or something. I don't know. have to be careful. What's that? They were naturists. There you go, yeah. But, but they, they, they knew each other fully. And uh, they saw everything about each other. And I, I think there continues to be something in the heart of the individual that wants to be known, that wants to be like naked on a soul level. On a soul level. Like there's something about... There's something about how each one of us like long for friendships where we can really just say, this is who I am. And, and, and just be loved and be accepted and, uh, and, and uh, be appreciated like that. I kind of wonder if that doesn't allude to it because it, what it was it say about Adam and Eve? It says they were naked and they felt no shame. Like I, I believe in the hearts of every person it is a desire just to be naked with people on a soul level. To be known for who you are and to feel no shame. Not to be critiqued or criticized not to be judged and held to um, whatever that person's expectations are, just to be accepted, just to be loved for, for who that person is. So, you know, we, we don't usually talk in that language, right? It's not like you would, let's say, meet somebody and be like, yeah, you know, I really would like to develop a relationship with you where we can be naked on a soul level. Like, you just don't say that to your friends, especially if you're a male. Um, you just don't use those lang that language, right? But that's, that's kind of what we see um, with Adam and Eve, and uh, I think there's a deep desire inside each one of us to, uh, to have that. Yeah, to be transparent, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, for some of us, that's really hard. You know, maybe some of us have been burned or we've had experiences where we've been transparent and we've been rejected or we've been criticized, but, you know, don't give up. You have to keep, keep trusting and, and keep opening our hearts to people, even though it hurts sometimes. Find the right people to open your heart to, though. Yeah. Um, I, I, as I've been contemplating this theme, I, I can kind of see like four seasons in a relationship. And they definitely overlap. You can't totally categorize them. But I see four seasons in a relationship that culminates in a covenant relationship. Uh, generally, the first thing is, is revolves around activities you discuss your activity. So let's say you meet somebody, one of the first questions often asked is, so what do you do? And that's generally related to someone's work or maybe to their hobbies and their interests. So you discuss your activities or maybe you have a relationship where you have a common hobby or you do something together. Uh, maybe you like to go to the shooting range or you are in the same, um, the same martial arts club or you go curling or, or you name it, right? That's often the case. Um, discussing activities. I would see the second season, which is a little deeper, being disclosing your mind. Disclosing your mind is when you begin to talk about what you're thinking about. Let's say that you have a perspective on some issue, in, um, some news story, or you have some opinion on an issue, or something that you've been reading lately, something that you've been learning about. All of these things are in the mind. And generally, in any relationship, you don't just do physical stuff. You end up talking about what's on your mind. It's, a, it's a pretty much invariable that that will happen. I would see that as being a, a season. I would say the third season, going a little deeper, goes from di like um, disclosing your mind to divulging your heart. Your heart is more... In, in, in the Bible, when you talk about the heart, it's not talking about your emotional faculties. It's more talking about who you are as a person, your, your inner self. And so when you, when you divulge your heart to someone, you, um, you will share how you're feeling. Maybe you are grieving over something, or you have some pain from your past, or you're just really happy and you just need to share the joy with somebody. Um, maybe you have some, some inner fear. 
that you would only share with your closest friends, or um, you have some dream for your future that you're almost afraid to even articulate because it's just so wild. Uh, maybe those would be examples of divulging your heart, right? And generally in a friendship, you'll, you'll move to that stage. And then finally, um, in a covenant relationship, after two marriage partners enter into that agreement publicly with each other, you will also have that stage of disrobing your body. And did you notice uh, I alliterated this? Listen for the Ds. Discussing your activities, disclosing your mind, divulging your heart, and disrobing your body. Those, those are what I would see as maybe being the four main seasons that would culminate in a, a full-on covenant relationship. You could sum it up by saying what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and who you are. And we actually, we totally see this in God's covenant relationship with Israel and in Yeshua's relationship with us as his bride. For instance, in the Exodus, the first thing that happened is Israel saw what God did. There was some action going on, and she was watching. Uh, secondly, he began to tell her his thoughts. This is what I think about this issue. This is what I think about this human behavior. As time went on, in that context, he also began to divulge his heart. For instance, when God gave a whole smack of laws, right after the, uh, the ten words on Mount Sinai, he... Every now and then he would say something that divulged his heart. He would say, don't oppress widows, don't be mean to orphans, be, why? Or, or I'm going to mess with you, essentially is what he said. And then he said, why? Because I'm gracious. So did you hear that? He said, I'm gracious. That is, that is something of his heart. That is who he is. So you can kind of hear that there. And then finally, God literally like unveiled himself as it were. He disrobed his glory to a certain degree before the people of Israel. And they saw him for who he was. I kind of wonder, there's a line in the Psalms that might allude to that whole concept. In Psalm 103, verse 7, it says, he made, his, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. So you know the people of Israel, your average Israel dude, he, he saw God doing some awesome things. He was privy to the, some of the phenomena. But, there were, but then Moses had this intimate covenant relationship that was much more face-to-face, -face, where he learned the ways of God, which is the heart of, um, of our Creator. Um, Psalm 103, verse 7. Yeah. Now, how many of you have encountered the concept of the love languages before? Different people uh, express love in different ways. So maybe some per one person, if they love somebody, they'll give that person a gift, or they'll talk to that person, or they'll want to spend time with that person. Um, I'm sure we're all familiar with the whole love languages concept. I would suggest to you that God also has love languages. He, he actually, he probably has them all. Yeah, I think he does. But sometimes we would look at certain ways that he acts or certain means whereby he expresses himself and we don't get it. We don't get it that this is one of the love languages of the creator of the universe. I'll give you a big one that pops up in this portion. I think it's one of the ways that God revealed himself to the people of Israel. It is as if he disrobed himself before his covenant partner. And sometimes I think we just don't get it because God did it through giving commandments. Um, the Hebrew word for commandments is mitzvot. Everybody say mitzvot. mitzvot. Great. And it's from the same root that the, we get the Hebrew word for neck, which is tzav. What is a neck? It's a connector between your head and your body. It's a, it's a joining section. Similarly, that's the idea behind commandments. In the eyes of God and in the Hebrew language, when he gives a, a commandment saying, do this or don't do that, he's not just a control freak who loves making laws and breathing down your neck. Every commandment is a way to... Yeah, oh, you done your neck. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, it's like his way of... It, it's like giving us opportunities to connect with him. Just like the head is connected to the body through the neck, we, as the body of Messiah, are often connected to the head, Yeshua, through doing the things that he said to do. They're connecting points. And uh, this is mitzvot, or one of the love languages of God. What did he say several times? If you love me... Keep my commandments. It's like saying, if you love me, here's my love language. Man, sometimes, seriously, I do stuff that God said to do in the Bible, and I just not feel in the love. It's like, I know he said to do this. I know that he cares, so I'll do it, because I really like him, and I love him. So I'll do it, but I'm not really feeling the love. That's okay. In any relationship, sometimes you will do things for your spouse or for a friend that you know means a lot to them, but it doesn't really mean anything to you, and you're just not really into it. That's okay. I would, I would view commandments that way too. You don't have to get the warm fuzzies whenever you obey something from the Bible. 
The idea is to give God the warm fuzzies by telling him that, he loves, that you love him in ways that uh, mean something to him. I'm going to read to you a page from a book by Dan, D. Thomas Lancaster. It's called Restoration, Restoring the Torah of God to the Disciples of Jesus. Great book, Ben. I think you're reading it right now. And he has some excellent words on that concept. That when we, when we look at the laws of God, it tells us something about who he is. It gives us insights into his heart. Um... He says this, If I were a God about to reveal myself to my creation for the first time, I would probably compose a nice systematic theology to put into their hands so that they could understand me and the universe I'd created. I might throw in some convenient math equations to explain the recipe of my Godhead. A few diagrams would be useful too. God doesn't do things like I would. When God revealed himself to us, he didn't give us a systematic theology, creeds, recipes, or diagrams. He gave us a legal code. He gave us laws. Yet, they are more than just laws intended to tidy up human society. They're actually, they are actual pieces of godliness. Every mitzvah is a small revelation of God. More than just a rule for governing human behavior, the laws of Torah are a reflection of the lawgiver. Yeshua told us that, quote, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Matthew 12, 34. When God broke the silence and spoke to his creation at Mount Sinai, the words he spoke were the fullness of his heart. Each law, each commandment, no matter how small or seemingly irrelevant, is actually a piece of revelation from God, an overflowing of his heart. For example, one of the laws given at Mount Sinai is about enemies and donkeys. Exodus 23, 5 says, If you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying helpless under its load, uh, refrain from leaving it to him, surely release it with him. The law commanding us to assist our enemy when he is in difficulty reveals to us a piece of true godliness. It's a revelation of God that would never have occurred to us naturally. Such a law teaches us about God's mercy and compassion. Even a moral human being would not feel compelled to help an enemy stand his donkey back up. Your enemy is the person who wants to hurt you and your family. Most of us would rejoice at the sight of our enemy's overturned donkey. We might offer a few encouraging hand gestures, but we certainly would not offer any assistance. Such a commandment is beyond the demands of natural law and far beyond the scope of human mercy and compassion. It betrays an origin other than human beings. It's a piece of God. Comprehending the infinite God is beyond the scope of finite human beings. We could never begin to fathom even a single attribute of God. For example, we do not possess the faculties to wrap our minds around the depth width and breadth of God's mercy and compassion. We don't have the compassion to understand even that single, the capacity to understand even that single piece of godliness. However, we all have enemies and we've all seen donkeys. Enemies and donkeys are two tangible realities that we can easily comprehend. The Torah conveys to us a piece of godliness through a medium we can understand. When we study the law of helping your enemy stand his donkey back up onto its feet, we've learned a little bit about God's character. Because Torah is both law and revelation, it functions in dual capacity. On the one hand, it's a rule of conduct by which we are held accountable. On the other hand, it's the expression of God in human terms. Torah is more than just legal formulations. It's the revealed person of God dressed in laws and commandments. Oh, I love that. It's like him dressed in laws and commandments. It's his spoken word written down, his self-disclosure to the world. When one realizes that Torah is God's self-disclosure to the world, one must also recognize the enormous gravity of declaring parts of that same Torah null or void. Even the smallest commandment of the Torah is suffused with godliness. To declare any commandment is irrelevant or obsolete is to deny the eternal and unchanging nature of God. As soon as we begin to discard commandments, we've begun editing God. We've started reshaping God into an image we deem more appropriate. For example, we Westerners find the idea of clean and unclean laws disquieting. It's therefore theologically convenient for us to annul all laws pertaining to clean and unclean. By so doing, we're able to clean up God's image a bit. We feel more comfortable with a God who doesn't make seemingly superstitious distinctions between a menstruating woman and one who isn't. But in so doing, we've changed God's self-disclosure to suit our biases. This is a very slippery kind of religion. When we try to change the Torah, or do away with a commandment, it's actually God we're trying to change or do away with. So, those are some words from 
D. Thomas Lancaster on that subject that I think sum it up really well. The Torah is, it's like his self-disclosure. It is him divulging his heart, disrobing himself as it were in our presence. Um, I'll leave you with a couple of practical things about this from um, like on, 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 let's say, with regards to our culture. We, we mentioned how it kind of goes from what you're doing to what you're thinking to what you're feeling to what you are. There's kind, of this, there's kind of this sequence and relationship. Often in our culture, we put the card before the horse and we just jump to the last step and uh, we, we skip everything else. That last one, the, the sexual aspect of a relationship, that is a covenantal act. That is something that's done in, in uh, the context of a marriage relationship. In our culture, very often people will just jump into bed together, shack up, have a one-night stand, casual dating, those kinds of things. I find that really sad because when people engage in that type of behavior, they're missing out on the beauty of covenant relationship. They're jumping to the last step. And um, physical intimacy, without that inner intimacy and without commitment to each other, it, it can be very cheap. It can be incredibly shallow. It can be a, a superficial thing that just doesn't satisfy and is fleeting. And uh, for people who have experienced that, you find yourself just becoming like a junkie and just going from, from um, person to person and never finding satisfaction. And the reason is because every human being was created with a heart that desires to know and be known, that needs to be loved and accepted. And that only happens in a committed relationship, a covenant relationship. So I, uh, you know, I, I've done construction and I have a lot of buddies who definitely would fit that mold. It's just, you know, it's just the animal side to the relationship that they're after. And uh, that gets old really fast. And it's sad because it doesn't reflect the glory of God that we were created to reflect. Um, let's, say, let's say if you're a young person and you want to get married, what, 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 what could we learn about this on a practical level? Um, one practical thing is just don't get physical with the person until you commit to them in betrothal and marriage. And I'm part of a movement of younger people who are hardcore about that. Like, I decided in my late teens that I wasn't going to date a girl until God gave me a clear green light that I could pursue her. I'd go to her dad first and get his permission. I would honor him and I wasn't going to get physical with the girl because I wanted her to know that I wanted to offer myself to her in the covenant relationship. I wanted to commit to her before we ever enjoyed each other on that level. So like, I don't think, I never dated a girl until Genevieve when we were like 25. I never even like, I never kissed a girl or even held hands with a girl. And that's not because I couldn't have or because I didn't feel those desires. It was a conscious choice on my part because God showed me in my teens, loving my future covenant partner starts right now. So I don't mess around. I don't get my hands all over other guys' future wives. Loving my covenant partner that I'm going to meet in the future starts right now. So I made that determination by his grace, and by his grace I, I stuck to it. And there's a movement of younger people and older people who are, who are making those resolutions, and I think it's a very powerful, a powerful statement. Um, you know, it kind of makes sense too. Like a lot of younger guys, they have no intention of pursuing covenant relationship with a girl, of getting married, they're just in it for their own gratification. They're just in it because it feels good for the moment. They, you know, so they won't talk to the dad because the dad would be like, well, why are you pursuing her? What are your intentions? They won't go and spend a lot of time in the girl's home because that's where her parents are and because they just want to get her out of that context so they can get their hands all over her. And that's disgusting. That's acting like a little boy. That's being a, a taker instead of a giver. And... Um, I, I would challenge any man, whether he be young and old, and he's pursuing a female, commit to the girl before you ever enjoy her. And don't just say a little, oh yeah, I'm going to love you forever. Because of course the guy's going to say that to a girl. No, make it public. Talk to her dad first. Commit to her in betrothal and marriage. And then enjoy her. Girls deserve that. Women want that. And it's the right way too. Sometimes guys will say, well, you know, uh, we're getting physical with each other and there's no commitment, but the girl likes it, so it's okay. No, it's not okay. She deserves better, even if she doesn't know it. Sometimes guys will say, well, you know what, it's just a lot of work to get married and we both really love each other and we've, we've whispered to each other that we're going to be together forever and I've told her that I'm going to love her forever, so let's just elope. 
Let's just run away. Let's just shack up. I think that's sad too, because marriage is designed to glorify God. It's a picture of our covenant relationship with Yeshua. And quite frankly, that's not how God did it. That's not how Yeshua did it. So why would we do it that way? Right? It's, it's, uh, it's taking the shortcuts. It's doing things the lazy way. And um, I am a male, so I will speak for males, that we will try and avoid commitment at all costs. We are lazy. We are passive. We will try to get by with as little as possible. And that is something that I've had to face in myself and every man has to face in himself and repent of and say, God, I'm willing for you to change me. I'm willing to go on this journey. So that's something on a practical level that we, we learn from this. Um, that's also why porn is really wrong. Because when you look at pornography, you're looking at someone outside the context of the covenant relationship. You're skipping those steps of shared activities, of hearing a person's heart and their mind. And you're just jumping to enjoying someone with no commitment being a taker instead of a giver. It's something that's just cheap and, you know, it's, it's really unglorious. So um, what could we draw to just symbolize that last step of two people, like, revealing themselves to each other in gradual ways? How about just two people standing next, uh, facing each other with a big heart? I think that's the, that's the heart of the matter, shall we say. How do you draw a heart on a stick person? Okay, uh, that, that's the person's heart. Okay, there. We'll just, we'll just draw that. And then um, what we see in this parasha is kind of the, the end objective. After God went through all of these, these steps in the covenant relationship, he said, okay, we're going to live together now. We are going to do life together. We are going to go on a big trip to the land of Canaan. But uh, I need somewhere to live. So here's, here's the dimensions for my place. You know, build this really nice tent. Here's the furniture you can put in it. And uh, that's what this portion and the next portion are all about. It's about this beautiful stage where the two covenant partners get to actually do life together and enjoy being together. And uh, that's, the, that's the beautiful thing. Uh, but it's a lot of work to get there. Have you noticed that? Like, Genevieve and I, after we got married, we were like, man, it's a lot of work to get married. I mean, we just, we just want to live together. We just want to do life together. Like, man, that took a lot of work and costed a lot of money. But you know what? Maybe that's the idea so that we can value it and so that we can do things uh, his way. So thanks for tracking with me in this uh, in this talk, so we've talked about covenant relationships, God's with Israel, ours with Yeshua through his shed blood, and also some practical applications in, uh, in the marriage covenant. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.